Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., Wednesdays at 9 a.m. The Wednesday is a special edition of Tell Me Your Story. We hope that you will listen because we stream live at those times at richarddugan.com. And uh, what else have we got for you? Oh, yeah, podcasts. We got, we're all over the place. Uh, I am grateful for those who have been listening to these programs, these podcasts, because we are over 104,000 listens since 2018. I've said it before. I don't know what those numbers really mean. I could go through and look at the analytics and all of that stuff, but I'm just glad folks are listening. And we're also on YouTube, where you can also listen to and watch these interviews, get to know our guest a little bit more, having a, a visual there, <clears throat> as well as yours truly. And we would also ask that if you could support the work we're doing here, uh, we would greatly appreciate that. We have a PayPal account. It is there for your security as well as ours. And we also ask, and we're going to get into this with our guest, uh, we also ask you to participate in what we have, uh, what we call the Decade of Perfect Vision, where we encourage you to go within and listen to that still small voice. I've been doing that for quite a number of years. I've gotten better at it. I trust more every time I, I do that. There's still days. There's still days when the things are really adverse. Ah, that's the word we're going to use today. That it's like, no, nah, I just want out. I'm I'm done. I can't. <laughs> I want to go home, wherever that might be. Uh, I can't go back to Phoenix. I have promised myself I would never move back there. Too hot. Too hot. My guest today, she is a peak performance coach, hypnosis consultant for health. Uh, athletics, business, performing arts, and academics. And uh, she has a website as well. We'll give you that in just a moment. She has a a book out that we're going to talk about. This is where that one word adversity comes in. And uh, no, this program is not a sports program in spite of the fact that we're going to be wrestling through (laughs) adversity, (laughs) empowering children, teens, and young adults to win in life. And my very special guest today is uh, Christine Silverstein. I want to thank you so much for being with us here on the program. I've really been looking forward to this because obviously even the adults, we're we're having trouble uh, dealing with the adversities of life. I mean, I could, I could give you my laundry list of all of the things that have happened just in the past two years and then just in the last few months and some of them I've been through before in my life and I'm still here. I'm still alive, still kicking, breathing and so forth. Talk to me about why you focus primarily on the groups of people uh, that you are in again, in terms of children, teens, and young adults? Well, I work with all ages from the nursery school to the nursing home. 
but I love working with children, teens, and young adults because they are our future. And also because I have four children that I raised and I saw how they needed support when they were growing up. And I have seen on TV, although I don't like to watch the news very often, <laughs> I do do um, kind of encourage myself to do so, to see what's going on in the world. And I realized that children, teens, and young adults are pushed aside, um, even to the point of being slaughtered um, to, today in in um, in Israel, and we need to give them the skill sets for the future, not only to get through today and tomorrow in what they face, but their futures, so that they can release the traumas that are occurring and also be productive and teach the children of the future what to do to have a better world. And I know because I've worked for 27 years at my center, the Summit Center for Ideal Performance, working with these age groups, that there is something that you can do to help them to feel good about themselves and win and to help them to help themselves, which feels really good for them, gaining confidence and securing their future and, and knowing what to do, especially when there's there's chaos, but also afterwards, how do you release the traumas from your childhood when you grow up? And how is that going to affect your life in a positive direction rather than a negative direction? Hmm. I have a problem with the phrase, the children are our future, because it seems as though our society, our institutions, they don't care. Mm -hmm. See, mm -hmm. here's here's the, the question I have for you in this re in regards to this conversation regarding this whole uh, wrestling through adversity. <clears throat> Our governments on any level refuse to do anything. I'm not going to mm -hmm. sit here and say, OK, we need gun control and we need this and that and the other. No, I'm not even going there. They refuse to do anything to protect our children. I tell you what, I'm so glad I went through school in the 60s and 70s mm -hmm. because I felt, with the exception of the bullies I've talked about before, mm -hmm. um, I felt safe in school. I could turn to teachers if I had a problem. I, had, uh, I, I was uh, legally blind until I was uh, 36. And... <clears throat> When I was in school, I had a resource teacher. That's what they called them back then. Mm -hmm. uh, I still remember her, Mrs. Reardon, Mary Reardon. I'm sure she's since passed away. And she was there. I mean, we, yeah, she helped me through the basic uh, classwork. Uh, you know, I would, I think it was like an hour, two or three times a week that we would meet sometimes in the library, sometimes uh, it's just a vacant room. And she would help me to go through math and English and so forth. Um, but we would talk about other things as well, you know, um, in terms of, uh, you know, what's going on at school in my life. Um, I'm sad for the children who are in school today because they, I, I have to believe they flat out do not feel safe. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about this aspect, if you will, uh, how important it is 
not just for children, but since that's what we're talking about right now, to feel safe, not only in school, but at home, at the mall, on the street. I mean, I don't recall ever having to worry about pedophiles abducting me. We had the run of the neighborhood. Oh, my gosh, we had a great, a great time. So talk to us a little bit about this aspect of feeling safe, both for the children as well as, of course, the teens and young adults, but even for that matter, even the adults such as myself, I'm 63 and I don't get too wrapped up in, uh, like you, I try not to, it's I, it's an irony, I work for a news talk station. <laughs> I try not to listen to the news because it just is not, it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but talk to us about the feeling of safety and is it possible to bring it back or is that Pandora's box been opened uh, and we, we can't go back? Well, I, I am hopeful. I am an optimist that we can change and it does come from adults. As you mentioned, you know, the government, the uh, people who care communities and so we have to look, you know, step back a moment and look at, so what can we do? And even in a small community, you can be helpful to children and set things up in a positive way. So my my perspective is we need to teach the children what to do to help themselves. So when they grow up, they won't be terrorists. We need to teach them to be engineers and teachers and nurses rather than how do you how do you create a, a bomb in your in your garage? Mm. So that's part of it, and we're talking about that even now. I heard commenters say that in Palestine, uh, in Gaza, that the Hamas is teaching the children, the young children, through all the trauma to be terrorists when they grow up. So in in a sense, we teach them these things when they're young and through the trauma of it all, and that's what they turn to. That's all they know. And there's this rage inside them. Mm-hmm. So we need to start with adults and looking at ourselves and everyday people, you know, on on a family level, on a community level, to realize that you and I, you know, as children, we had traumas. You're talking about bullying. I had some challenges in school. I had high energy. I was an A student, but I happened to be very energetic in the classroom one time, I was sitting in the classroom. I was in the 12th grade. I was 12 years old. And I I used to play kind of in my mind, imagination, basketball in my mind. I was in the first row, first seat. And there was a, a trash can in front of me near the door. And this, I went to a Catholic school and the nun came in and said, oh, today your teacher's absent. So I have to take care of this class, my class, and the other eighth grade. And so she was feeling overwhelmed now looking back because there were there were 50 students in each class. So that means 100 students she had in charge of. And anyway, she was talking about that. And I, I had a ball of paper in my hand. I rolled up and I used to play basketball, right? So I threw the, the uh, ball of paper into the trash can and I missed it bounced off the rim and it hit the bottom of the of the teacher's habit, the, the nun's habit. And she went into a furious state. 
um, because I was, you know, I was the perpetrator of a crime, you know, throwing something at the teacher. And so we had assembly that day downstairs in the auditorium. And with that, because I was a lightweight, I was the youngest person in my class and I didn't weigh very much. So she just pushed me down these very big cement steps um, without a railing. And then again, she caught up to me and pushed me down the rest of the way. And so that was a result of having high energy. And I look back and I, I never had the chance to say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean, you know, to throw the habit. And she didn't ever apologize to me. But when we went to the assembly that day, and I was highly embarrassed because the principal announced what I had done to the whole school and how I was, you know, a bad girl in essence. So the thing with that was the year prior, I did have this same teacher. Her name uh, in, from Latin, translated from rat, Latin, was Queen of Peace. And I had her in the seventh grade, and I wasn't a student, and they never had, you know, caused any challenges. So um, I look back, and even at that age, I realized that she had pressure, um, you know, that she, she was taking care of 100 children. But at the same time, I felt really bad about it because I never had a chance to talk to her, anybody about it. And I never told my mother about it, you know, when I went home, because in those days, so you would be asked, so what did you do, you know, to deserve it? But I think now looking back, I should have, because it was dangerous. I could have been harmed. I could have had broken bones, you know, because these were the the old uh, school cement steps, you know, with no hand railing. So I really should have reported it to my mother but I was afraid to do so. So so that's an idea. So I could bring that forward and I could have that a trauma in my life. But of course, I worked through that. And I, I choose now to look at the positive things I learned at Catholic school and, you know, bring that forward in my life. And there were some sisters who helped me even later in life um, with Life Review um, before my mother died. So it's not as if I'm rejecting that, but I'm just saying um, you get this diagnosis at that time. It was just the beginning of the research on ADHD. And, and so, um, you know, your child has ants in her pants, and that's all they could say about me, <laughs> even though I was an A student. Well, so we have to learn these things. And in my book, chapter eight, I do have that I do have the title ADHD, Where Did the Answer My Pants Go? And that's the review of the story, but also what's going on with the drugs and, and uh, the labels that we have with children who have high energy. Well, I remember being taught in biology class in both grade school and high school uh, that boys and girls are different. Girls' brains mature a little more quickly than boys. Mm -hmm. That boys are full of, um, I'll go ahead and use the phrase, piss and vinegar. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and I have a feeling that if I had been born 10 years later, I probably would have been put on a Ritalin or some other, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to call it a mood-altering drug. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait a minute, what the heck is this all about? These mm -hmm. people don't have a problem. It's and now this is just my observation, mind you, and I'll I'd love to have your your perspective on this. 
These people, these kids don't have a problem. They're kids. They're mm -hmm. children. They're supposed to be high energy so that yes. they can mm -hmm. go out and play and do all these things. Let me hear from you about your, your thoughts on this. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, we know in our society currently, boys are more prone to being put on drugs like Ritalin and Adderall. And um, it's like um, by the time they're seven years old and it gets worse as they enter high school. And But girls are looked at in a different way. Uh, for, for me and my family, I have three older sisters and a younger brother, and we all had high energy. So we just thought that was normal, you know, childhood, and we could get a lot of things done. Um, and, you know, and, and I was able to climb the telephone pole when I was three years old, and I was able to win a skating uh, competition when I was 10. I trained myself. So I put my energy into that and, and knew what to do. But many people think that that's abnormal, that high energy uh, should be just squelched and that could be done by taking drugs without the benefit of behavioral conditioning, which is very important. So it's not to say that the use of drugs in all cases is, is not beneficial. It can be initially, but then you need to learn that mindful toughness skill sets that I teach so that you can be productive in your life and use that energy. After all, we have an energy crisis, you know, and gasoline is high priced. So are we just going to throw the gasoline in the tank out onto the street or are we going to use it productively to drive? And that's how I feel about it. So um, over the course of time, I learned how to channel my energy, get through high school, although I had challenges there as well. Um, because I would ask questions that the the nun didn't like, like how come how come God if he's so omnipotent and, and and omniscient, how come he can't make a boulder so big that he can't move it? I asked that question when I was thirteen in religion class, <laughs> and the nun told me that if, if the Pope had heard my question, he would excommunicate me, you know, and, and so wow. so I thought. Okay, I'm never going to ask a question again. And once again, I didn't tell my mom, who was putting me through the school, paying paying for it with her waitress money. So I never told her because who knows, you know, what God would do if if He ever found out. You know, so I never talked to her about it. But looking back, it did squelch my ability to speak out and to ask questions that really, in the past, philosophers asked. You know, Saint Augustine asked questions like that. And really, um, the nun, she didn't know how to answer it. And so that's the way she responded. But I remember feeling embarrassed, thinking, well, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get excommunicated because I asked a question that was a horror to me at 13. I can relate uh, because uh, I've been asking those hard questions. I didn't stop asking because the answers that I was getting <clears throat> from the clergy both being born and raised Roman Catholic, but also working for, I guess you'd call it a an evangelical Christian radio station. The answers did not make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely didn't make sense. And someone said to me, well, Richard, you need to read the writings of the founding fathers of the faith. And I thought, okay, wait a minute, hold on, slow down. You want me to read the writings of these guys who have been put up on a pedestal 
uh, and uh, they've been asking these same questions. So would that not stand to reason that I'm in the same class as them? Because I'm asking the same questions and I never even heard of some of these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's just one of those things. And I even ask the same kinds of questions when it comes to day-to-day living and some of the things that are happening. I, For example, you know, you talked about in the not watching the news, you know, and especially the the talking heads when they start to expound and this is on both sides. This is not exclusively one mm-hmm. side or the other. And they start name calling. And my first question to these name callers is how is that helping to solve the problem? Exactly. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. Let me ask you, um, oh, and before we go any further, uh, we're, folks, uh, we're talking with C- Christine Silverstein, and we're talking about her book, the latest work that she has. We hope that you'll get a copy by going to idealperformance.net and get a copy of Wrestling Through Adversity, Empowering Children, Teens, and Young Adults to Win in Life. Um, yes, and that is available on Amazon, so it's easy to access. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it available as an Audible yet? It's in the works now. Ah. It's being recorded. Um, and I have a narrator who's doing that for me for audio books. Excellent, excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. I I actually enjoy uh, oh listening to um, the books being read. And um, as a kid growing up, I was legally blind. So I was getting books from recordings for the blind and talking Mm -hmm. books for the blind. And some of these readers were just amazing. This is back in the late sixties, early seventies, long before audible was a big deal, you know? (laughs) Yes. And I'm glad that it is now for people like you, as you were saying, but also a lot of people like to just listen to books. They yes. don't have time in their lives to read these days. So they listen like my husband does when he's doing chore, you know, around the house or in the garden. And that's how he gets his reading in. So so it's for both groups of people and just make it accessible to everyone. Absolutely. Which I'm very happy to do. I even had a conversation with the general manager of said Christian radio station, Many years ago, back in the 80s, early 90s, when uh, there was a big brouhaha over the fact that um, the Library of Congress was paying for Playboy to be printed in Braille. (laughs) And the conservative Christians did not want that because they said, no, no, that's that's terrible stuff. First of all, they don't. They don't print the pictures for starters. (laughs) But the more important part is what you are saying to the blind and visually impaired community is, I will tell you what's appropriate to read. That's what's happening again here in the 21st century. Oh, yes. For for example, Mm -hmm. in Florida. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and it's like, does nobody seem to understand we're talking about Fahrenheit 451? That that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Speaking of Mm -hmm. which, just a sidebar. Do you know what first, What was the first book that Kindle dropped from its reading list? It's probably back now, but early on, Fahrenheit 451 was dropped mm-hmm. from their reading list. A little, yeah. a little bit of irony there. 
but it, it is it, it, there is irony for yeah. sure yeah. so um we are looking for answers you have some in your book wrestling through adversity empowering children teens and young adults to win in life and your chapters are set up in a very uh very interesting way in that uh you try to lay out sort of a what like a metaphor uh you know um, almost like aesop's fables of a sort so that people can sort of grasp that a little bit better rather than um you know, going through a lot of, oh, I don't know, a, a, a lot of um, trying to figure out, oh, what is she saying? Because a lot of times the metaphor is a wonderful thing uh, because it speaks to pretty much anybody. I want to ask mm -hmm. you about your first chapter, Building Resilience in the Face of Adversity. Um, I've always been a very optimistic person, even as a child. Uh, when adversities come along, and I don't see adversity as a negative at all. Um, I've always thought, okay, well, this is what's happening right now, this quote-unquote adversity. But I don't know how it's going to uh, you know, how it's going to wind up, how it's going to come to fruition, if you will. And as long as I keep a positive attitude towards what's happening, I'll be okay. No matter what happens. I mean, I, I worked for a station that was being sold. I lost my job on the 28th of February, 2006. My wife quit her job on the 1st of March, 2006. <laughs> but it opened up a doorway for us to consider moving to where we are today. Santa Barbara. I mm -hmm. always wanted to be by the ocean. I don't get out there as often as I'd like, but needless to say, so I'm close. Because we don't know the final outcome, is there, is there a way for us to process this information that's happening, like, for example, my my job being eliminated and my wife quitting hers uh, that we can, we can better. I don't know if it's understand what's happening per se, as much as maybe this is where we want to go within and say, Hey, what do I do next? Guide me. I need help here. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think there is a process and we use it, but we, we don't realize that we're using it. For instance, I mentioned before, when I was 10 years old, I joined this, I, I signed up for a skating race in New York City. I, I grew up in a small town called Far Rockaway, which is the Rockaway P Peninsula in New York City, and it's near the ocean. And so I was in this playground, PS 104 in Bayswater, and there was the the little station, the brick station, with a man who gave out the um, knock hockey sticks and the basketballs for the playground there. And I saw a sign, and it said that there was going to be this skating race, citywide skating race. So right away, I signed up for it. And I never told my parents about it. My father was the, 
the uh, director of the Police Athletic League in my town, and he had told me that there were no sports for girls, especially in his program. He had basketball, football, and and baseball. And so I signed up, and I, I went over to the handball court where they measured your height, and I came out to be um, in the MITE class, M-I-T-E, because I was petite, <laughs> but it was according also to your age. And and I decided, well, what's a mite? You know, a mite is this little bug that burrows under your skin and causes scabies, right? So I made myself into Mighty Mouse. I, I figured I'd be Mighty Mouse. And I practiced, put my skates on every day, you know, tied them to my saddle shoes that that had um, I had from school. I had to wear it to school. And they were the only uh, shoes that would fit my, my metal skates. And I just practiced and saw myself going over the finish line first, having little wings on my heels like Pegasus to (laughs) help me with my speed and setting my performance goals, my plans of action, all the things I use now with my clients and actually winning the local Far Rockaway race and then going to Queens um, after that and coming home with new skates, brand new skates. Uh, I never had a, a pair of brand new skates before because I'm the fourth daughter. And so they were always handed down to me. So I put the new skates on the kitchen table when I got home. And my mother said, where did you get those skates? And I said, I won them in a skate race. And she said, what? <laughs> and my father, of course, was beaming when he came home. And so I, they were so beautiful. They had red inserts and they were from the Globe Skate Company. And then I put them on to win the Queen's Championship. And and that was, um, I got a, this little jacket with Pegasus wings on and actually on, on the, um, the um, chest on the left side. And I was eligible to go to the New York City Championship in Central Park. And I placed there as well. So So it was this idea that I got this bracelet with, coins on it, international coins I had never seen beyond U.S. currency. And I thought, oh, I'm like, I'm like a world champion you know, <laughs> with, the, with this, this uh, coins on my bracelet. And I felt like I was an international star. So that all came from this idea that I saw myself, I, I, could, I could do this because I, I learned how to skate when I was three years old. And I remember exactly when I learned we were having this skating race on our street. It was very informal. All the kids got together. We put a chalk line there and we had a whistle. And then we were going to race down the street to the finish line. But I was too little you know, to do that. But I said to my older sister, so can I skate too? I want to skate too. So she brought me into the basement where the skate box was of the hand-me-down skates. And there was these little skates. They didn't have ball bearing wheels and you tied them on your feet. So my sister put them on my feet and brought me to the starting line. And I said to her, so how do I skate? And, and she showed me, you move your arms and your legs like this. And so the whistle blew and I took off and my father on a very rare occasion, had off from work that day. And he saw me go by and he said, look at her go. You know, <laughs> I just took off. And, and I think I placed in that that little informal uh, race on, on our street. Mm. So that's the idea that, that you have in your mind. And I think we're all born with ideas and we can nourish them. And our family, of course, can nourish that within ourselves. And so you have that goal and you see yourself and that's how you move forward. And when you think about it, 
That's how you accomplish everything in your life, like how to graduate from high school, how to graduate from college, how to win a championship, a wrestling tournament. And so we have that vision and that comes first. And we have to nurture that vision and really do what it takes to accomplish that goal. So for me, as a 10-year-old, I would practice every day, rain or shine, all over the town, you know, just wear my skates wherever I went. And also I went to the, the playground where the race was going to be and, and saw myself crossing over that finish line first. Mm. So, yes, there are things that we can do, but we have to nurture it and learn one of the techniques that I teach is called mental rehearsal in which you project that image in the future and you see yourself, feel yourself, hear yourself and, and using all your senses to accomplish that goal. And the more you do that, the more you're able to reach that goal because it's that's how the that's how the brain works and that's been proven um, by neuroscientists the mechanism in which you can mentally rehearse and as, as if you're actually there performing so that's really a jewel that we that we have to nourish and we all have that capability using the power of our own minds we're talking with Christine Silverstein and we're working through the wrestling uh, through adversity. I would say that we all do it in our own way. I would like to know from your perspective, how important is this winning at life? How important is failure in winning at life? Mm -hmm. Well, failure, of course, is part of winning. As you said before, you have adversity and you're you're thinking, oh my goodness, what if I failed this or failed that? Rather than saying, okay, so let's see if this is a learning experience. If you, I call that Edisonian thinking because of the story of Thomas Edison and how he was working to invent the light bulb and doing everything he could staying in this lab. When I was younger, I visited his lab. I went to his lab and I was told by the, the tour guide how he he uh, tried to um, use everything film to fix the filament in the light bulb because it wasn't lasting more than a couple of minutes and mm -hmm. how it's that going to light the world and he had competition as well um, a lot of competition to be the first and so he would say to people well wh where are the mistakes everything i try is an opportunity to learn what works and what doesn't work mm -hmm. and so i i refer to that as edisonian thinking and that's how we all need to think it's like what's going to work and what's not going to work as a matter of fact i developed a feedback loop to show you how you can use the power of your mind i work with a lot of wrestlers high school wrestlers and so you can you can mentally rehearse a takedown um, what do you do? How do you execute it? You know, um, how is it working? And then look at your success. Well, maybe you partially took the person down, but not all the way. So what can you do to fine tune it and then come around and mentally rehearse it again? But in the center of that feedback loop, and I have this in my book as well, is all these questions. What was I feeling when I was performing? What was I thinking in the last few minutes of that match? And, and I needed to score. And you'll find when you win that you were thinking in a positive direction, I can do this, I'll use my high crotch takedown. Or you were thinking, no, he's too strong, I can't escape from bottom. And you were feeling a lack of confidence in yourself, to say the least, if 
you're you're thinking in a negative direction. So you can change that and you can feel confident and look confident, even if you don't actually feel it within your body, you have to present yourself as a confident person. Presentation is everything. So the feedback loop can help you. And that's what Thomas Edison actually used to invent the light bulb. And even with that, people, well, maybe he didn't do, he wasn't the inventor, but it was proven years later that he was the first one. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's uh, also what's rather interesting as we uh, look back in history at uh, some of the inventions that are um, attributed to some of the big names, whether it be Marconi or Edison mm -hmm. and so forth, when in the reality, the only reason why their name appears <clears throat> as the inventor of is because they got to the patent office first, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. By the same token, there's a there's a a, a a phrase. I think it's from the Old Testament that says that there is nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like, all right, you want to uh, invent this or so forth. I mean, we then not long ago we had, I believe, it was a Japanese gentleman who developed the LED. And I think mm -hmm. he he may have won, I'm not sure if he won the Nobel Peace Prize, some award, an uh, international award. And I'm thinking, well, okay, that's great. All he did was he shifted from one form of generating a light to another form. But I mean, we could still be using torches today for all that mm -hmm. matter, because, or candles. You know, it's it's like, it's not really a new invention. It's just an innovation on what's already here. Exactly. A variation on the theme and how somebody mm. looks at it in a different way. Um, for instance, um, the the creation of, of penicillin and how that was looked at as um, by the scientist as um, look how the, how this mold is killing the, the things in my petri dish, you know, it's look what's happening now. I have to start it all over again, you know. And so then the inventor comes along and says, "Well, wait a minute, maybe we could use this for purposes of health." Yeah, it's it is truly amazing um, what we are experiencing today, especially after uh, the wars, during the wars, and after mm -hmm. um, with penicillin was a big boon, especially after World War II. Mm. Well. We're talking with Christine Silverstein. The book is entitled uh, Wrestling Through Adversity, and you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. How did you come up with that title? What what connection? I mean, you've already mentioned, you know, that you, know, you supposedly were a wrestler as a young one. Um, why why is that part of uh, part of the title of this book? What's the connection? Well. From the very beginning, as I said, I, I was watching these things on TV. I was very much influenced by the events in early 2022. And that was uh, the start of the Ukraine war. And also Uvalde came early in that year, um, the shooting of the children. And there were other episodes of, for instance, uh, college uh, elite college athletes committing suicide. Mm. And I was outraged by all of these things. 
And I just so happened to look at a book that I had on my shelf. Um, it was called um, Wrestling Through Through Life. And I used that in my introduction in my book. And it was a story. It was um, a biography, actually, of a wrestler who had been a wrestler. And then he was a wrestling coach later on in life. His name was Phil Nowick. And during the 9-11 attack, he worked at Merrill Lynch on the upper floors. And so he wrote in his book during his his um, time when he was actually dying from having cancer spread throughout his body. And he was, I think, um, in his late 30s at the time because um, he was racked with it. But he talked about his experience in the World Trade Center that day and how he went to work early uh, to exercise because they had an exercise floor and facility there. And he had just finished his exercise sitting there in his shorts and his sneakers. And all of a sudden, the um, attack started. And what he had to do to get out of the building and to run down the street and there was um, so much smoke going into his lungs, he couldn't breathe, glass and all kinds of things he was inhaling. But because he was an athlete, he was in good shape and he had his sneakers on, he could run away through the thick smoke. And so I was very moved by that story because he talked about in his book before he died, how um, when he was at Merrill Lynch, he didn't fit in. He didn't fit into the everyday life. He didn't go to the right schools. He didn't go to Harvard or the, you know, the Ivy League schools to become um, um, a person who could work in, in, in the business of uh, Merrill Lynch. And he also, um, I think he was an attorney and he didn't go to the right schools for that. And so and also he was he had the wrestling physique um, a shorter stature with the big muscles, the big shoulders, no chin, as he described it. And he just didn't fit in there. But the one thing that he had, he was really good with analytics. And so he would tell them what he really thought. He'd tell them the truth of what they needed to do. And he inspired me when I picked up that book. I said, oh, my goodness, I have to write a book, too. And so especially in light of what was going on. And so he was my inspiration initially. And the metaphor wrestling through adversity doesn't mean just because you're a wrestler. <laughs> we all grapple with life's challenges. And so I use that as a metaphor to show you, yes, how a wrestler would go through this, but also how everyday people, no matter what our color, no matter what our ethnic background, we all have to work together as a community. And so that was the beginning of my my book. And I just thought that um, it was very appropriate to include everybody, everyday people. It is also written for professionals, not in the in the sense of the APA style that you use when you do peer review articles. But I do have a lot of references in it and the names of the, the writers, the journalists, etc. So my colleague read it. I, I have some endorsements and they loved it. From the perspective of it's for everyone and you can get benefit from it. And so I used Phil as an example of somebody who wanted to get, you know, advance in the corporate world. And he wasn't able to because, as I said, he he died, um, you know, young in life. And, and also everyday people who are sitting there grappling with the challenges of the price of gasoline and food. And the people who have challenges with their children, their teenagers who are in emergency rooms and 
and that they're, um, they have suicidal ideation, the no programs for them. They don't know what to do to help their children. So that was the mindset I had and the metaphor of, of writing this book from the very mm-hmm. beginning. Sherry Silverstein is my guest and uh, wrestling through adversity is uh, the conversation we're having, the title of her book. Ideal Performance is the website, idealperformance.net. And will be linked to that website so people can find out more about the work that you are doing. What role does uh, your experience in and training in hypnosis, what role does that play? Because I think I saw that in here where that's part of, that's one of your modalities, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes. It plays a very big role in my life. Uh, because I learned it at an early age, a relatively early age, what to do for myself. It started way back when I was in my 20s and I was married and I wanted to have a family, start a family. But I encountered many miscarriages and I was told that I was infertile, that I would never have a babe, a live baby um, because I had these miscarriages. And, and so I went through these challenges it was so difficult to get through there were no support groups back then nobody to talk to after the miscarriages people would say it's god's will or um you know you probably it's okay if you don't have children lots of people lots of people have miscarriages and i went to many doctors um and they told me you have to take a drug it was called des diethylstilbestrol and that was the only thing I could do to hold the live baby in my arms after these miscarriages. And I was called an habitual aborter, referred to like that with my diagnosis. So back then I said, so what can I do? I'm not taking this prescription drug. I knew it caused cancer in, in the offspring and also cancer in the woman, you know, years later. So I rejected that. I threw that prescription in the garbage and I went home and I decided to make my own self-improvement, self-development program. And I called it fertility consciousness that I was going to learn. And so I studied meditation, um, transcendental meditation, which is popular at that time with the Maharishi Yogi. And I learned how to do that and get into that mindset. And I also looked up in the telephone book and I found I found somebody, a psychologist was doing self-hypnosis and it was pretty far away from my house. And I had to get there by using the roadmap because they didn't have GPS then, but I don't know how I got there, but I did. And I learned self-hypnosis and that came in handy because I had to develop this expectant mind, which was holding a baby in my arms, unlike what the doctor told me. And, and loving a baby just like other mothers would. And so um, at night, especially during, this is now my fourth pregnancy, and I had four miscarriages in, in total. This is my fourth pregnancy. And I knew that when I went to bed at night, I was sleeping on a mattress. Underneath the plastic cover was all this hemorrhage from a previous miscarriage that I had had. And so I tried to cover it up with this plastic cover But I knew when I was trying to go to sleep, I was very anxious because I did have some of the miscarriages at night in the bed. So I would really be upset. And I had to I knew I had to get through the fourth month or the fifth month to maintain this pregnancy. And so that's when I use the self-hypnosis. 
to, to help me go back to sleep. And it was very powerful. And then I started to use it, of course, for other things. And my son was born some months later. And it was such a big accomplishment for me using the power of my mind. I also looked at diet, what I was eating, supplements and things like that to support the pregnancy. And I was able to have four children after that. One more miscarriage between my second and third, but four healthy babies um, without taking that drug, DES. Mm. I I have to say that as far as um, number of kids and so forth, I mean, I grew up in a family where we had six kids, two parents. They wanted a large family, so that's what they did. I don't know if my mother ever had any miscarriages. If she did, I, I would venture she probably didn't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I wonder if maybe, you know, we need to stop having kids. We got more than enough on this planet. But yet I also recognize that there is, a specifically in the female, a strong maternal instinct. Mm-hmm. And... I have to wonder, because it seems like what you're talking about, where you're going, wrestling through adversity and so forth, that we we need to start thinking about uh, what's best for society, what's best for our community. Mm-hmm. Now, one gentleman told me uh, in an interview that, about 100 to 150 years ago, you had to have kids because you needed them to help to yes. you know, mm-hmm. farm the fields and you know carry on the family business, whether it was uh, blacksmithing or a grocery store, et cetera, et cetera. But here we are in the 21st century, and you don't really need that anymore. I mean, we've got machines now, robots, AI, and all of this kind of stuff. And I know that a lot of these subjects are very near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. I mean, I I remember <laughs> sharing this thought with my father. Said, "Yeah, I I chose not to have any kids because I didn't want to pass on the the um, hereditary uh, eye conditions." Mm-hmm. And my dad immediately popped up. He says, "You do know, Richard, that if I had taken that position." you wouldn't be here. And I said, I know, (laughs) I understand that. I do. Mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when we are talking about this whole issue of, um, as we talked earlier in the program about why would you want to bring a kid into this world? You know, I mean, my gosh, look at what we're dealing with. I mean, it's just, it's a mess. Well, they were actually saying the same thing back when I came into the world, back in 1960. Uh, And of course, even back further in the 40s during World War II and so on and so on and so on. And uh, I guess that's where individuals do need to make up their own minds. I'm not sitting here passing judgment on anybody who chooses to have kids. I mean, my gosh, I have, I have three nieces, a grand niece and a grand nephew. Uh, and um, I, and my brother, well, my brother does have uh, one, one uh, girl. I think he adopted her 
or at least he's her stepdad. Uh, I don't, I have no, I have no children. I have no intention of having children at the age of 63. <laughs> um, but it kind of goes back to that whole aspect. And I'm wondering how hypnosis helps in this context of wanting to feel comfortable here in this world, in the 21st century, in the 2020s, which we call the decade of perfect vision. Um, what about that aspect of, I mean, the population's already popped over the 8 billion uh, several months ago. Um, and so I have to, I'm curious as to your perspective on uh, if we're going to continue to have them, you're you're going to be in business for a long time to come, unfortunately, because we've got a lot of stuff that's going on that we we can't control, right? And uh, well, we we can, uh, but we have to work on it for sure. Well, it's interesting you say that because I remember in college taking an ecology course, and during that time I had to have um, to to I have my own project, so. I worked in the Bronx in a, uh, a clinic and it was for um, birth control. You know, uh, they, they distributed birth control pills and tried to help with family planning. And I remember seeing a lot of people, they, they were at lower socioeconomic level and they wanted, um, they didn't want to have more children. So they came there for birth control and, I also mem remember my oldest sister standing online getting birth control pills when they first came out after she had two children at a young age. And so at that time, taking that course, I remember going home and telling my mother, mom, you know, how come you had five children? Um, and also she had uh, two miscarriages. So that meant seven altogether. And, um, and she said, why? And I said, well, because we have this population explosion, we have to feed the, the children. And so I gave her all the reasons like you're talking about. And 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 I told her we shouldn't have any more than 2.5 children, you know, statistically. <laughs> so my mother looked at me and she said, Well, how could you have a half a child anyway? <laughs> like that. <laughs> and so so years later, now, because I did have eight pregnancies by the time I finished, um, but four children. Um, my mom came back and said, well, what about those 2.5 children you were talking about when you were younger? We, we kind of laughed about it, you know. Um, so so I, I, I gained a different perspective. And it really went back to when I was having this memory of going home from the dentist with my friend and passing by this large brick Presbyterian church that was beautiful to me and compared to the, the wood framed Catholic church I went to. And we were, we were imagining ourselves in the future and Jude, her name was Judy, my friend. And she, we were talking about getting married in that church as we passed by and having a white lace um, dress and being married to this handsome, you know, tall, dark and handsome man. And I remember saying to her, well, I think I'm going to have eight babies when I grow up. And I don't know where that number came up, but it was common in my town at the time for people to have five and six and even 13, 16 children, even, you know, back then. So eight, I didn't think that was, you know, too, too big a, um, a family. But anyway, 
I said that. And years later, of course, I had eight pregnancies. And I think that has something to do with that memory of when I was a child. And also seeing my mother when I was 10 years old, she had a miscarriage when after we moved and she was lifting heavy boxes. And I remember her crying in the kitchen. And that would have been her, her sixth child. Because I was 10 and my, bro- my younger brother was eight at the time. So, but she was crying over the fact that she had a miscarriage that morning in the kitchen, in the, in the bathroom. And I remember feeling sad for her, um, even though she was older by then in her forties, but she, she was crying about it. So mm. it's our lived experience as, as women, which is different of course than men mm. and also how we were brought up. And I just happened to love children. I love working with children. I I love I really love working with teenagers and young adults. I think they've been left out of the picture altogether because we have in this country um, on your se- in the last day of your um, when you're 17 years old, um, you're you're just a teen, you're just a kid, and then the next day on your birthday, your 18th birthday, all all of a sudden you're an adult. And how did you get there? And what skills do you have to till about the age of 25? And that includes young adults. And so um, so what do we do in our society to teach them to be adults and to be prosperous? So my my um, emphasis is on working with young adults, setting them up from college into their into their um, work, the work that they're going to do. And um, I, I feel that they've been left out altogether, although there are some shootings in colleges. I just saw something on the TV where um, the the students were climbing out of the second floor window when there was a um, a gun threat in, in, at at a school at a college. So it's not as if they haven't been affected by this since um, the young adults since they were born since um, two thousand one in the in the World Trade Center attack. That's all they know. They don't know anything else. Um, so so we have to consider um, yes. We have these children, but you need to take care of them and teach them what they need to know. And, and the fact is we can all come together as communities to feed the children. You know, we we can have food banks and ways um, the government has a food program. And then they say, no, let's take that away, you know, during the end of COVID. And so, yeah, children need to eat. And, and so uh, we make them into this pariah, like, um, children should be seen but not heard and that goes way back to when we used to dope them you know um there's there's the story of how they used opium to keep them quiet they called it uh, what do they call it? the um the nurses it was the nurse the old nurses treatment where they would give them the the child care person would give opium to keep the kids quiet when they were teething and so we used to dope them we used to tell the the 12 year old who started menses oh this is a bad thing and you can take opium for that and then they would get addicted you know their grandmothers did it their mothers did it and so they did it so it's not about just having the children but how do we take care of them after they're born and they're precious to me um they're they are our future um and economically they're finding that out in china for sure when they're restricted the birth of children to one baby now it's two and the women don't want to have more children because they got used to having just one and i know because i was there in china and i asked a tour guide about it women are having fertility issues there now because of all that Hmm. 
Christine Silverstein is my guest, and uh, her latest work, of course, is Wrestling Through Adversity. That's important, isn't it? We we have to go through it. We cannot go around it and so on and so forth. We have to go through it. Talk to us about that. Yes. Well, in my book, in the first chapter that you mentioned, I talk from the early years of one of them is a story about how Judy and I went to the dentist and that's how I decided I would have eight children. But also some of the traumas I had early on, and you don't think traumas are really important. And we, uh, I work with the subconscious mind, which I consider right under the conscious mind. If you think of the Titanic, they have a, a picture of the Titanic, the surface above that is all the conscious information like we're using now. And then below the line of the water is the subconscious and way down deep in the bottom of the ocean is the unconscious where we just stuff things in and bury it and we forget about it. So I'm sure that you have many, many traumas relating to um, your visual challenge that you just stuff down in there and they'll pop up, you know, they'll pop up there like they're popping up when you said to your father, well, why should I have children? Look, look at the condition I have. I don't want to pass it on, which is actually something that geneticists tell people now, you know, if you have the, the gene for Tay-Sachs, um, maybe you can should consider adoption, you know, if you had that gene. So so that that is something credible that you're saying, but beneath all that, way down deep, are all these traumas related to it. And I described something in my book in that first chapter, um, two things. One was about the dentist, and the other thing was about an operation, eye surgery. I had at 12 years old, and that story um, really I pushed down for many years, but it pops up occasionally. And I'll tell you the story. Um, so I'm 12 years old and the doctor told my mother, I remember going to, to the specialist that I had to have the surgery before I got too old. And it was a lazy eye and um, people would make fun of me. And also it was affecting my vision. So the doctor said, you have to have this surgery now before your daughter gets too old. So we went home and we discussed it. I remember sitting at the kitchen table and my parents discussing how are we going to pay for this? Right. So so the idea was um, they said we have to get a bank loan out to pay for this because my father's insurance only covered um, the maybe the hospitalization, but not the doctor at that time. And so anyway, it was scheduled. And my mother, my mother was really um, very caring. And she took me to the hospital on that day. It was right before Christmas. So I could heal during the Christmas holiday. And I get through the to the uh, hospital for stopping off for an ice cream sundae and carrying the suitcase in. And I was on the pediatrics ward, and I was really an, on the verge of pre-adolescence development, physical development. And I was the only pre-adolescent on the kids on the pediatric ward. And I remember having trauma with that, um, the, the, the nurse coming in, giving me an enema with um, narcotic, and, and the children... Uh, the little kids were looking from the doorway, laughing. They didn't. They didn't give me any privacy, and so um, that and then the horrible experience of ether, um, trying to kick my way out of that. The smell and the stench of it was disgusting. And then also afterwards, they had no recovery room, so I ended up in a room without a call bell, 
patches on both eyes. I couldn't see. And I vomited. I was trying to get out to go to the bathroom and they had side reels up. They put a diaper on me. And so and now I'm 12. And so they left me there and I vomited and it's all over me, all over the bed. My grandfather walked in and saw me and called to the nurse and I got cleaned up. But that also, I had the stitch in my eye. My mother told me the stitch will dissolve, but that wasn't true. The doctor came at my eye with a big tweezer trying to pull out the stitch and I was screaming and yelling, a big pointed uh, tweezer. And so that trauma stayed with me, but I didn't realize it until years later, even last year, I had gone to the eye doctor and I'm developing a cataract on my left eye. And so I couldn't really see the eye chart and think, oh my gosh, I'm going blind. And the doctor was acting like, oh, I'm going to take your driver's license away. Look, your vision, you know, your vision is so bad. What happened, you know? So I I was sitting there saying, oh my gosh, this goes back to my my childhood. So I had to work through that again. And also I had iridotomies in my eyes to prevent narrow angle glaucoma, little holes drilled in my eyes. And I had to remind myself when I got home from the doctor that my left eye has a heart-shaped hole in it from from the the specialist. She didn't realize she was making it heart-shaped. But the next day she said, oh my gosh, I don't know how I did that, but there's a heart-shaped hole in my left eye. And I began to value my vision and and what, what I do see. And I went, I did some eye exercises. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but um, moving your hands in front of your face, et cetera, I learned when I was a child. And so I did those. When I went back two weeks later, my vision greatly improved. I calmed myself down during the the um, exam and I didn't need the cataract surgery right then. So, so that was the idea of how things come back to haunt you if you don't work on them. Mm. But now- I feel very strong in my vision and know that I can see and that and that my eye doctor told me 95% of vision is not the optic nerve. It's what you think and what you know um, inside your own mind. Mm. So that's very supportive um, to you and also to me. Well, I can tell you that as a kid, I had quite a number of surgeries uh, for the cat for cataracts. Back then they did what was called stirring where they would put a needle inside the eye and they would stir it up so that uh, hopefully the cataracts would break up and then they would flow out like they should normally do, the little particles. I remember one specific surgery. I still can see it to this day where I'm on my back. The gurney's being wheeled down to the operating room. We get in there. They were about ready to put the mask over my face. And back then, guess what they used? Ether. Mm-hmm. And I told my uh, doctor, his name was uh, John Aiello. Mm-hmm. I said, if you do that, I couldn't play. I think back on it. If you do this, I won't play with you anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, mm. yeah. And then uh, in 1996, when I had a lens implant in my right eye, um, my ophthalmologist at that time, uh, whose name is for whatever reason, escaping me right now, be that as it may supposed to have the surgery in February, but I don't know why I freaked out. It was probably because of that childhood memory. So mm-hmm. they had to postpone it. And I thought he was saying they weren't going to do it at all. Cause mm-hmm. I definitely wanted to get that lens implant to see better. 
So we put it off until March 6th, 1996. Rather auspicious mm-hmm. as far as numerology is concerned, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was actually quite the... Uh, it was really a cool experience. Now, they actually had to knock me out in order to deaden the nerve mm-hmm. as they did their thing. And then they brought me out and I was fully mm-hmm. conscious and awake to the point where I was sharing with everybody in the operating room this uh, blue cheese hamburger recipe. And at mm-hmm. one point, finally, the doctor says, you really need to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but I I could see everything that they were doing. Oh, that's so great. When he mm-hmm. removed the lens, of course, it went real blurry. Then when he put the uh, artificial lens in and then he had to, it was interesting because it has these little wires on it and you have to turn it to hook it into the tissue of the, uh, I believe it's the cornea. Mm-hmm. Um, I was seeing well, that day, my 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 wife at the time and I walked to the McDonald's on the corner and I was so disappointed at the trees because prior to the lens implant, the trees, they looked so fluffy and full and, and now they didn't look as fluffy. They, I could see more detail. And when we went into the McDonald's, I was actually able to read the menu up on the up on the wall. Um, but I have a feeling that that second experience in 96, and I'm curious if experiences that we have down the road that can be associated with some of the traumas can help to... And what's the word I want? What's the phrase I want? Help to um, maybe alleviate the trauma from that childhood experience where if you do this, I won't play with you anymore kind of thing. Yes, you can you can make um, in your mind's eye a different picture. Right. And especially when you're considering you're talking about vision, how the tree looked different, you would disappoint it. So now you have a vision in reality and you can actually see and read the menu. Oh my gosh, what a growth experience from not being able to see as a child and saying, I won't play with you. But um, the experience, they're projecting them onto their own children, um, maybe in terms of sports. For instance, I once worked with a 18 year old wrestler into my office. His father told him that he wanted him to win more and this is on like Eve when he came in because there was a tournament coming up. And so the I went into the inner office to work with the young person. He was sitting on the recliner in the corner of the room with me. And his father starts to bang on the, on the door to the inner office. I mean, literally banging. And he's saying at the same time, teach him how to kill. He has to kill. He has to win, you know, like that. And his son was sitting there. And he's, he's scared. He's holding onto the chair. And I said, is this what your father says to you, you know, when you're wrestling? He said, oh, yeah, especially when I lose. And so so there there's the, the reason, the cause. And so um, so that comes out. And if we don't work on you know, the traumas and, and our experiences from the past, I never got into what 
caused the father's problem, but I did get to work with him through his his wife and turn him around, um, you know, in his thinking so much that the wrestling coach called me up and asked me, what did I do with the father? <laughs> the son was doing well, but what did you do with the father? You know, he was he turned 180 degrees to, to be pleasant and to work with the coach <laughs> rather than to say that he wanted his son to learn how to kill. So um, the son did well. The father did well. And then the coach, the wrestling coach who had trauma when he was wrestling, when he was younger, I helped him to um, to audition on the stage on Broadway because he was going to school for acting. And I helped him to, to learn what to do from his wrestling skills and translate them onto the stage because wrestling is, is a performance <laughs> for sure when you're wrestling in, in front of thousands of people. So... So in any rate, it turned out well, but that's the idea that people have and they just project it onto their kids and there's the rage and the, um, I have an example in my book where a father of, of a, a 10 year old hockey player argued with another father because he didn't like the way the practice was going. And then they ended up squaring off and one killed the other, other father right there in front of the kids. Wow. And so- so it's that I have a chapter also violence in sports, you know, is it toxic or is, is it a um, elixir? And I think it can be an elixir. <laughs> I know when you help the children to outgrow their, their um, adverse childhood experiences and to win. And, and that's the mindset that I have that I actually got from my father who worked for the police athletically for 25 years. Mm. Uh, let me ask you before we wrap up here in regards to these different experiences that we have in our lives. I asked you about uh, the importance of failure. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is it, it is an important factor. Many of my guests who I, I kind of put that question to them, I ask them, how important is, is it in the work that you do, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, well, I think it's very important in the sense that you you do not have to you don't know how to overcome adversity unless you have adversity, and it's very important for parents to understand that to help their children to grow even through these challenges. Because even if you have the perfect life um, before you go to kindergarten or first grade, maybe you're right on top of it with your children and everything's fine, but they could be bullied the first day of school, you know, in the schoolyard, and they're not going to be prepared for that. So that's how you do it. And you do it with the little things first, like, um, you know, I, I wasn't invited to the my friend's birthday party or some trauma like that, some more serious traumas, like what you had as a child. And you help them through it as you go along with these principles. This is, you can see yourself, you could see yourself seeing in, in your case. And then you actually did, because as I said, um, a large part of vision is in your mind, in the, the subconscious mind. So, so to use the power of the mind and to realize that your children have to go through adversity, unfortunately, but not to the extent where you're in Gaza and you see your whole family being murdered. But before you get get to a place like that, what to do, even in an emergency like Phil Nowick, I spoke Nowick, I spoke about before. He knew to run out of the building and down the street, and he could do it. You know, he knew what to do because of his training, and also 
um, he had his sneakers on and he, he lamented that some of the other people had dress shoes on and ladies had high heels and they couldn't run as fast. You know, he noticed that because they were all in it together trying to run from the building. So, and, and even he saw um, wrestling through this in life as a growth experience because after that he started a wrestling school, something that he always wanted to do and he was a coach. So that was before he died. So adversity, no, we don't like to have it, but it's essential to learn what to do. Um, and I call that resilience. And that's why we wrestle through it so we can become resilient. No matter what happens in life, we can handle it. I think that uh, my experiences throughout my life, in uh, I like to say my brief 63 years on the planet, um, has given me the the perspective that I want to help other people to work through their adversity. Um, I consider myself uh, not lucky, but maybe, I don't know if fortunate is, is any better, but nonetheless uh, that I am living in a place where I have wanted to live for decades. Uh, not so much Santa Barbara, but by uh, the ocean. I've mm -hmm. wanted to, and I didn't think that, I, I didn't know where I was going to move. Could have been on the East Coast mm -hmm. for all that mattered. But I'm living here on, on the central coast of California, as they call it. I'm doing what I love to do, which is conduct these mm -hmm. interviews, have these conversations with folks such as yourself. And in spite of all of the adversity that is before me right now, uh, and I can say that um, we rent a piece of property up on a hill above Santa Barbara that's been up for sale for a year. Mm -hmm. um, we also, uh, I am working for a radio station that is in the process of being sold. I've been, this is the fifth time in my career. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. On either fronts, mm -hmm. I'm dealing on a medical level with some uh, conditions that uh, I wish I wasn't, but I'm getting through it. You know, it's taking a little longer than I like. I, I figure, all right, my physical body mm -hmm. is taking a lot longer to heal. And I mm -hmm. understand that because my body is older. But something that you said that I have adopted and I adopted this, my God, probably 40, 45 years ago. My visual acuity, even before the lens implant, was it's a perceived limitation. Yes. Mm -hmm. I was queuing up records at a radio station back in the 80s, early 90s. And, of course, someone noticed that I had a magnifying glass and I was using that to see where I put the needle and everything. And. And um, they said, I didn't know you had a visual problem. I says, oh, oh, yeah, I've had this all my life. I'm kind of surprised that they didn't notice, but that's okay, you know. Mm -hmm. And yet I could cue up a record. I could cue up a record in pretty much five seconds flat from the cabinet to the turntable with the needle mm -hmm. on the, and then back cueing it to be ready to play. Um. Yeah, I was just, it was, and, and I just learned to do that. Um, so I, and I've learned to do a lot of things that mm -hmm. 
you wouldn't think uh, people with quote unquote my condition would do. I worked with blind, I mean, totally blind individuals who ran the console at the first radio station that I worked for, Sun Sounds Radio Reading Service for the blind and mm -hmm. visually impaired. So they did the same thing as I did. They they didn't they didn't say, no, nah, I can't do anything because I can't see. Mm -hmm. They adapted. They, yeah. Mm -hmm. They made a way. Mm -hmm. They made a way. Yes. Well, think of uh, Beethoven who <laughs> created her, his symphonies. He was deaf, you know, so yeah. it didn't stop him either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Christine Silverstein, my guest, the book Wrestling Through Adversity, Empowering Children, Teens and Young Adults to Win in Life. And you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. Christine, uh, we are uh, fast approaching the end of our conversation here, and I've really enjoyed this. I do have three final questions that I ask all of my guests. But before I ask those questions of you, let me thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, where we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., and Wednesdays at 9 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. We're also on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, uh, Stitcher, Player FM, and a lot of other locations on the Internet. And we're also on YouTube. And I thank the folks who have been uh, listening to and watching. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I hope that you will share the um, audio and video with people uh, so that they can learn something here as well. Again, it's choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We also ask if you can financially support us. We have a PayPal account. It's there for your security as well as ours. And we also ask you to spend some time going within during this, the decade of perfect vision, we ask you to spend some time going within and listening to that still small voice. And with all of that being said, the first of my three questions as we wrap up this uh, particular conversation, who is Christine Silverstein? Who I am from early age, I knew I had a mission I remember saying to myself when I was five years old and I was rejected by my parents, my little brother won over the argument. And I remember going to this vacant lot and saying to myself, I got to do things myself. Leave me alone. I'll do it myself. That was my attitude. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming home and saying that and my parents supported. They would laugh. You know, they kind of grin to each other and really support my independence and i believe that is who i am still today i am i wrote this book it took me um a year and a half to to get it to fruition to be published in in um september 9th on september 19th and i have brought those principles like i did when i was 10 years old uh, as a mighty mass into my life so many times to accomplish my goals i've always been goal oriented and seeing the vision of myself and I work towards that goal. And I also have the very special name my mother gave me, Christine, which means follower of Christ. My mother was um, a convert Catholic from a Protestant religion. 
And she believed she sent me to Catholic school. I went there for 15 years. I ended up marrying somebody Jewish, <laughs> who I'm married to now. But at the same time, um, I I believe in that. That's uh, it means follower of Christ. So that's how I live my life. Mm-hmm. That's who I am. What is your life's purpose? Well, my life's purpose is to reach out to others and to translate what I know so people can understand. I'm a visual learner. I understand metaphor. That's the way I understand my world. So I translate, and I've been doing that since early childhood when people would come to me and say, so, Christine, what do I do with my teenage daughter? And I'm thinking, why are you asking me? I'm just a kid, you know, but I'd answer them, and they like my answer. <laughs> so that I made that my mission. I went to nursing school at 16, and my first thing was, well, how do I talk to patients when they're dying or they're sick or they, they, they have to have an operation? What do I do, you know, to help them? So that's always been my mission. And I, I was I graduated from nursing school at 19, and, and and I decided I'm going to use all these skills to help people um, throughout the world. And that's what I'm doing now. And finally, what was your best day? My best day, I have to say, I'll say days with the births of my four children. But I remember one in particular when I received my doctorate from Columbia University and it was a very challenging time to get through my my doctoral studies because I was such an eclectic thinker, and my dissertation had to be changed at the last minute um, because they thought that my studies were all my imagination. So anyway, I changed my dissertation and wrote another one in, in six weeks on the history of nursing science, rather the history of nursing of psychiatric nursing. So I'm sitting in the quadrangle at Columbia University in my cap and gown, and it's pouring, pouring rain. And so um, we all had umbrellas, but the water was dripping on us from each other's umbrella. (laughs) And Maya Angelou, she she gave the keynote address, and it was so inspirational for me. And it was just the happiest day of my life to get there. And my mom, who wanted to be a nurse when she was uh, young, never got to be and she as she came with her walker down um saint john the divine with the with the um hooding ceremony took place and she was there to to um see me get my doctorate and also i heard this little whistle there um it sounded like my father's whistle he was known as blow because he used to deliver mail and he whistled and so I heard a whistle like my dad there too, congratulating me, even though he had passed away years earlier. Mm. So I think that was the ha- one of the happiest days of my life, graduating with a doctorate from Columbia University when my parents um, were everyday working people. They had high school education and they wished this for me. Hmm. Well, Christine, thank you so much for sharing your story and the work you're doing through this new book. wrestling through adversity. And uh, we will send people to idealperformance.net. And again, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed discussing our traumas and our victories. Absolutely. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. 
And until our next broadcast podcast video cast, love to lol. Jeanette, I'm still listening. Dad, continue to be happy because I am. To my uh, dear friend, Smokey, I'll see you on the other side. And to my dear friend, Zorro, aho, aho. <laughs>